Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and to look at your word and, and look at what you're telling us about the future as this chapter talks about even future for us. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Daniel chapter 8. This is, this is a, a very interesting chapter because it is very controversial even amongst the scholars. And uh, I lean to the scholars that say this is talking about the, our future and the Antichrist and not Antiochus uh, who, destroyed, who uh, desecrated the second temple. And there's many that uh, say that it's him, but there's just certain things about this section that I that definitely do not fit Antiochus, and therefore I do not believe it's talking about Antiochus. <laughs> so, chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. So he's referring back to the last chapter in, in chapter 7, which was in the first year of Belshazzar. And now we're in the third year of Belshazzar. And I saw a vision, and it came to pass. When I saw that it was a, I was at Sushan in the palace, which is on the province of Elam, and I saw a vision, and I was by the river Ula'i, and I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there was there before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver us, deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Just stop there for a moment. We'll see what the interpretation that this is definitely this, but he is talking about Medo-Persian Empire. The ram with two horns that, that came upon, came out of what was the east to them, coming west, south, and north. The Medo-Persian Empire took over everything that Babylon had and covered that entire area. Two major groups, the Medes and the, and the Persians, and the uh, Persians had the greater experience at the end. They were the stronger, in which they were the greater horn that, that came up after the first horn. So this is a picture of the Medo-Persian Empire. It will be very clear when we get to the interpretation that Gabriel gives Daniel because he says it's straightforward. It's Medo-Persia. <laughs> there's no question on these first two kingdoms who they are because Gabriel tells Daniel very clearly who they are. And so this, this uh, kingdom is going to push west and northward and Cyrus is going to be one of the great kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. He's one of the two horns. Darius is going to be the other. And it starts out as we go forward on here. And we just want to take a quick look in, in this, uh, because Isaiah 45 is one of the verse chapters that I believe Daniel was the one who talked to Cyrus. I, I don't remember who said directly, but he's the one that showed Cyrus that his name was already in the Bible. And in Cyrus, in, in chapter 45 of Isaiah, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, and said, to subdue nations before him, I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut asunder the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches, riches of the secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called you by name and have surnamed you, and, and you have known, uh, though you know me not. I am the Lord, and there is none other. There is no God besides you. I have girded you up, though you have not known me. And he goes on to tell Cyrus that he was going to be used to bring the people, send Israel back. And this was part there, and also in Jeremiah, we see the same, the same things, even though it doesn't name Cyrus there, but, but God says he will use his anointed to send Israel back after 70 years. So Cyrus comes along, and I'm sure because Daniel's helping him rule, he kind of points out these books. And Isaiah has written hundreds of years before Cyrus is born and named Cyrus. And they understood the two lead, the two, the, the, the opened up the gates was when they stopped the river up and, and walked into Babylon in, in victory. So everything about this, he's looking and he's saying, this is, this is me. This was given how long ago is what he's told, what he'd been saying. 
and he ended up sending the people back to Israel. So just getting that out, because this is all kind of interesting how the Bible ties everything together on these, on these things. In verse 5, and, I, and, I, and I, as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between its eyes, and he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen before, standing before the river, and ran into him with the fury of his, all the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was, and, and he was moved with bitterness and anger toward against him, and smote the ram and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down into the ground and stomped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of the, his hand. And so we're seeing a picture now of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great was one who took very few losses in his campaigns. He was a military genius. And when he set his sights, he conquered the whole, the whole of the known world in about 17 years or, or less. I mean, he just swept over everything. And Medo-Persia stood in his way, and he just conquered them. And he, he, just, he came with military genius that people didn't understand. And it said that he came toward him as anger. It had one horn. And we see it again. And we're, again, we're going to see when we get to the translation, the interpretation from Gabriel, that he very clearly says that this comes from Greece. And you've got to remember, this is all coming to Daniel before Babylon has even fallen. Okay? At this particular time, the Medo-Persians are an empire. They're aware of the Medo-Persian empire being formed and and growing because he's in the third year of Belshazzar. And it's not long until until they fall. But the Greeks, they don't even know anything about the Greeks. The Greeks are way off over some mountains. And they, I mean they're probably aware of their towns and their cities, but they're not a they're not a power in anybody's mind at this at this point. And we're seeing God say, the Greeks are going to rise up and they're going to conquer this whole area. And they're probably thinking, oh, yeah, the Greeks, you know, there's a big body of water between us and a whole bunch of mountains between us. We don't have to worry about, we're not having to worry about them. And yet God is throwing to him a great battle that's coming his way, and it's going to be the Greeks when they, when they see this. Let's see. Verse 8, therefore he, the he goat waxed very great, and when it was strong, the great horn was broken, for it came, and from it came up four notable horns toward the four winds of the heaven. Okay, so we see here, and this is another indication that it is Greece, because when Alexander the Great died, he did not designate a uh, successor. It is said that he quoted, that he said, let the strongest take my kingdom. So his four generals split the kingdom up rather than fight amongst each other and was probably a very wise thing for them for them to do. And his generals were Ptolemy, who took over Egypt, the Seleucid dynasty, which took over the Medo-Persian Empire area, uh, Lysimachus, which took over the Middle Eastern area, and they forever fought in there and were battle. And uh, Ptolemy and Seleucia, kept going back and forth over his territory. So he really never had a strong kingdom. And then you had the uh, uh, Cassandra who took over Greek, the Greek area, the one on the other side of the mountains. But we see from one comes four. Now, the next one is a little, the very next verse is where we start getting into a bit of controversy. And it's not really explained even by Gabriel. When, we get what I think is very clear, but scholars bounce it back and forth, so you, you know, you're going to have to look your own things up, and I will tell you what they say and why they say it, but I'll tell you why I think it's the Antichrist. But Verse 9, And out of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even, in, even into the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground and stomped on upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it, 
and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto the, that certain saint which spoke, How long shall the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desecration be given both to the sanctuary and to the host trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Until 2,300 days, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. All right. So we see here a picture of a horn. Now, the expected place for this next one would have been Rome, because Rome has always been what he's talked about. The image of Nebuchadnezzar went from, from Greece to Rome, to the ten toes and the splintered Roman Empire, to the mighty Antichrist rising up. In chapter 7, we saw the same picture. We saw Greece going into Rome, and then the little horn coming up. The fact that it says little horn, I do not think it's talking about Rome in this particular lesson, and not talking about Antiochus, who actually came out of Greek, the Greek uh, run. Now, this is, and we say, well, what's, well who cares? Why, why was it a big deal? Well, it probably isn't, and this is why we can't make any strong decisions. If it is Antiochus, it would tell us why Rome's not mentioned, and that's why they like to say it's Antiochus, because Rome is never mentioned. Okay, it doesn't get to Rome. And Antiochus did go into the temple and did you know, offer a pig on the altar and desecrate the temple, but he did not meet other parts of this, this statement. Okay, um, he did not... You know, he did not wax so great and exceeding as if as, and challenged the hosts of heaven. He did not stand before the prince of the host, which is Jesus. So I do not believe that this is Antiochus. I understand why they're saying it is, because it's, it doesn't bring Rome into the picture. And here, for the first time and only time, it skips completely over Rome, as if Rome's not important in this, in this particular vision. And it may not be, because the whole point of the vision is the anti, what I think is the Antichrist rising up against God. Okay, and that's why I think Rome's not mentioned because it's totally irrelevant here. Yeah. From Greece, Greece all the way to beyond our time. Yeah. Uh, and it just left out Rome completely because the Roman Empire. And the other thing about it is the, from the Roman Empire on, God has been dealing with Gentiles and not the Jews, so he could be jumping over the entire period of the Gentiles and saying, the last work with the Jews was under the Greeks, and I'm going to go all the way to the end, which is under the, under, under the Antichrist. And that's speculative, and it's, I've not read that anywhere, but I, I just thought about this, is that Rome basically is the time of the Gentiles. The entire Roman Empire, yes, it started a little bit before the time of the Gentiles, but it ushered in the Gentiles, and has been, it hasn't been taken over, so it's still the Gentile period. That could be a reason that they're dropped, that he's just throwing out the Gentile, you know, the Gentile period completely and saying, okay, Babylon dealt with you, the Medo-Persians dealt with you, and now the Antichrist is going to deal with you. Now, take that for what it's worth. It's just a thought. It would give a reason for Rome being totally dismissed. Uh, I believe that it is the Antichrist because he waxed exceedingly great, and it just says toward the pleasant land, which would, in Daniel's mind, is Israel. That that would be interesting. I didn't I didn't notice that. I didn't read that on any commentary because I didn't read any commentary on it. But that would be interesting because that would say that he's leaving the Gentiles and coming back to the Hebrew people, which would give further indication that he's skipping over Rome because it's the time of the Gentiles. Um, so it says he's exceedingly great, coming toward the pleasant land. He waxed great even to the host of heaven. And this is one of the reasons I don't think he's talking about Antiochus. We'll see more of this when Gabriel starts talking to him because Gabriel really goes forward into talking about it and makes it, to me, very clear that he's talking about the Antichrist and not uh, Antiochus. And he cast down some of the host. This could be going back to the very beginning when he took a third of the angels with him because Revelation talks about the, took a, he was cast out of heaven, took a third of the, third of the angels or the stars and we're going to get to that. Stars oftentimes are personal personification of the angels 
And it says that the stars of the ground, he stomped on them or put them under his, his rule. So we see this. This, to me, is not talking about a human being. This is very clear to me talking about an angelic, a supernatural-type power, not, not a man. And he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And this is what Satan does. Even today, he goes before God and the I wills from Isaiah, I will ascend into the, into the hill. I will be like the Most High. Okay? He exalts himself even in front of God and Jesus, saying, you know, I'm something special. You created me, but I'm, I'm, the, I'm the super, super important part of creation or whatever it is he's thinking. And so he exalts himself. He magnifies himself even unto God. And this, again, Antiochus is said to have done that by going into God's temple and, and sacrificing the pig. He's basically saying he was more important than man. I don't see him actually going up and, and conquering in, in the heavenly realm. Okay, so again, I'm not totally going to rule out Antiochus. Antiochus was a type of the Antichrist. So he's going to have similar properties to the Antichrist. He's going to do similar things that the Antichrist will do. I heard a pastor say one time, and I'd never thought about it, but Satan does not know when, when the end time is starting either, so he has to have somebody in the wings always to be ready to step up to be the Antichrist. So there are many lesser, not quite Antichrist, but types of the Antichrist always in existence. People looked at Hitler and said he was the Antichrist. Well, he was a type of the Antichrist. He, he did many of the things the Antichrist is going to do. Some of these Muslim leaders that are being raised up are types of the Antichrist. So that when God takes the people, Satan's going to have somebody ready to go. Because Jesus, when he was on this world, said, I don't know when this is going to happen. Satan doesn't know when it's going to happen. So he always has to be ready for when this period starts. So Antiochus was, in all practical purposes, an Antichrist. He was trying to destroy the Jews. Herod was a type of the Antichrist as he's trying to destroy the Jewish people and trying to destroy the Messiah. There's been all through time these Antichrists that are out to try to destroy the Jews so that God's message and prophecies do not get fulfilled. That is what Satan is trying to do and to use that he raises up people that are the antithesis of Jesus and more like Satan in trying to destroy everything. And so it makes perfect sense. I mean, they're not technically the, any of them are the Antichrist, but if the time was to be just right, then all of a sudden this person steps up and becomes that position and becomes possessed and all the stuff that it needs to happen to be that title and position. So, and then we see that, the, that it says he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his sanctuary is cast down. Okay, so the this individual they're talking about stops the sacrifice. And, 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 and Antiochus did do that for a while. He stopped some of the some of the sacrifice. We know that in the tribulation period, that when Satan and the Antichrist allow the temple to be rebuilt, they'll start the sacrifices, and then one day Satan will appear into there as, as the Antichrist and say, Oh, by the way, I'm the Messiah. And at that point, Israel will know that they have been lied to and deceived. Okay? And he will stop the uh, worship. So we see all of this stuff coming down. And again, I'm trying to draw your, your the opinion. You know, I can't say Antiochus was not the, this person is talking about, but I just don't believe it because of other key points because he did fit into a lot of it. But is something I'm going to let you do some of your own study, your own research on, and find out. I really, truly believe it's the Antichrist and not Antiochus. We're getting there. Oh. You're jumping ahead of me, huh? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's one that nobody knows. Oh. That one I did look up on some commentary to see what other people had said. because I could. Oh. But anyway, verse 13, and I heard one saying that I was speaking... And it would be trodden under, verse 14, and he said unto me, 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. 2,300 days, and literally in this original writing, it says evening and morning, and morning, okay, which is a Jewish 
statement for 24-hour days. There are many people who try to read this in and say, well, it's 2,300 years uh, because they're trying to figure out how it can fit in, and that would be pretty much the time between Jesus and, the, and, and now. So it kind of fits. But with it having said evening to morning, it is literally speaking of a period of time that's very specific. Okay, it's not just the word day, and the Greeks do, and the Hebrew do have a word for just day. Okay, and they could have used the word yom for day, and day or age could be any period of time. But when they said evening to morning, it's just the same thing when we look in Genesis when it says, and evening and morning was the first day, evening and morning was the second day. God is very clearly saying when he says evening to morning that you are dealing with 24-hour days. But all, the, the Jews count more evening to morning, okay. always. Their day starts at evening. Their day starts on evening and ends. Oh, okay. It ends at sun, at sunrise. It starts and ends at sunrise. My Bible has a note Right, and that's the why, that's the strongest evidence they have for it being Antiochus. Um, and you got it. And two thousand three hundred days is is uh, six point three years, which also happens to fit into the tribulation period pretty easily of seven years. Okay, but it throws off this idea that he, he walks into the temple halfway through. So it's. We don't, and this one is troublesome to a lot of people, and people have tried to do a lot of juggling with this and trying to figure it out, and unfortunately, it's not defined later on. When Gabriel gives the definition on what it is, it's not defined. Antiochus did stop the sacrifice for, I don't know if it's exactly the 2,300 years or if it was for six years approximately or what it was, but he did stop the, stop the sacrifices. And this is the strongest place that people will say, obviously, it's Antiochus. And the other thing we want to keep in mind is God would have no problem with a more recent fulfillment of it and a later fulfillment of it. When we use the verse that Jesus will be born of a virgin, that was given to the king because he doubted God's promise and he said a virgin will give birth and, and a newly married young girl in his castle gave birth to a to a child a boy and they're going here's the here's the new one but we also know that it had future and this is true oftentimes of the scriptures there's a quick physical answer to the prophecy and then a longer term answer to the prophecy so that it is not uncommon for that to happen so it is quite possible that this one little section might be Antiochus and not the future it could also mean that the Antichrist is going to de desecrate the temple a lot faster than anybody thinks because of the idea of three and a half years that gets in there. Because I can't think of any verse that says it has to be him stepping in at the halfway mark. It just, it talks about the halfway mark and then it talks about him coming in and that's not necessarily being having to be tied together. So he could have them start their, start their worship and then within just, a, you know, a little over half a year step in and say oh by the way I'm I'm Messiah and be worshiped for a while and then they realize who, how they've been cheated we don't know and this is one of the things I keep talking about when we deal with eschatology or end times we need to be very careful that we don't get so dogmatic that we do what the Jews did with Jesus and go he failed because he was supposed to come and deliver us he came and did just what he had to do when he did it, and there's the future event coming that he's going to come back and rule. And we need to be very careful in our, in our study of end times because they are future. There could be some valley between what we think we know and what, and what really happens that we're not aware of to throw us off. And then we could be just like the Jews saying, well, nothing, nothing they said is right, so what do, I, what do I believe now? And we want to be very careful about this. This could be Antiochus... And it could be that the Antichrist, after only a half a year of worship of, the, of God, is going to sit, come in and say, hey, I'm, I'm the Messiah, worship me. 
and selling them the peace that he's bringing in, especially the first part of the first part until he totally turns everything around in the second half. So we want to be careful that we don't get too dogmatic. And this is one thing that's funny when I listen to these experts on, on end times is they are very dogmatic. The only problem in 40 years is I've heard that dogmatism change so much. Yeah. It has to be this. It has to be that. It has to be this. And then that country disappears from the map and all of a sudden, well, now obviously it's this other country that's rising up. Well, why don't we just say it's going to be a country from somewhere in that area that's going to rise up against Israel. Right now, I would agree with him. It looks like the Muslims. But for generations, it was the, the, the Russians are going to come down from the north and evade them. And Russia is north of Israel. But so is uh, Iran and Iraq. So we want to be very careful. And it could still be the Russians because Gog and Magog still are part of that mix. And that's the Prussian further on up area. So uh, Persian on up area. So we want to be very careful. It might be all the things that they've ever said coming together at the very end time and saying, okay, here's, because the whole world's going to come against Israel. So we want to be very careful in, on how we read things and understand things because it's hard to look into the future with the clouded picture that we have and say this is an absolute. And so we just uh, leave it there. Verse 15. And it came to pass when I, even Daniel, had seen the vision and sought the meaning. Then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ula'i, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. And he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall the vision shall be the vision. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. So we just look at this. This is what happens when people stand before God and the angels, the holiness, the righteousness that they feel from when they end up on their face. And in this case, the angel is going to lift him up. Gabriel's lifting him up. No, you're not supposed to be on your face in front of me. And this is what you see every time an angel is people bow down before the angel. It's get up. I'm a servant. I'm a servant. Get up. This is why we know that when Abraham met the three men outside as they were getting ready to tell him about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, we know that it was Jesus that he saw because he offered the sacrifice and it was accepted and he went up on the smoke of the sacrifice. And if it had been an angel, he would have said, get up, no, it's not going to me. And so we, we see this in various places on this. And he says he fell down. And Gabriel was the one that's going to give him the instruction. Verse 19, he said to me, Behold, I will make you know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. Three or four times we have here, at the end time. This is another reason why I do not believe it's Antiochus being talked about. Because it's this last section is, what's coming and it's not just what's coming that was that was the little two the little small section where he's talking about uh medo-persian and the greeks and then he spends the rest of the time in this chapter talking about the end the end and so and it says that you know toward the end indignation at the time appointed the ram which you saw having two horns are the kings of medo-persia very clear he just said Gabriel says, they're coming, don't worry about them. Uh, he goes, and the rough goat is the king of Greeks, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. In other words, lesser than him. Very quickly, he dispatches the first part of this vision. Neo Persia, Greece, four kings out of Greece, now let's move on to the little horn. Okay, and so this is how fast it's being talked about. Verse 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark secrets shall stand up. I think the key to this verse is when the transgressors are come to full. When does God judge the world? When it becomes as sinful as it was in the days of Noah, 
when God judged them because every imagination of their heart was evil. We're seeing that happen more and more in our day, that every imagination of man's heart is evil. And we're not quite there yet, otherwise we would be raptured and gone. But can you, have you thought about how much evil there is and how much pleasure some people take in evil and in their planning of their evil and in hurting people and trying to cause trouble? We're not quite there yet, but we're getting close to that day when the, their, the transgression is full. When God says, okay, I have to judge because it is getting so bad. And there was a day, and it wasn't so long ago, especially in America, where most people did kind things or good things. You know, There was the day when your, your word was your bond, your handshake was, you could leave your doors open, no problem. You know, There was this level of honesty in this, in this country and in other parts of the world. But this is where we're at now. People are imagining evil. They're calling evil things good. And we look at things like the abortion industry murdering all these unborn babies and trying to say, well, they're not, they're not human anyway. They're just, they're just globs of tissue sitting inside the person. And it should be their right on what they do with it because they're not a born, born individual. We have homosexuality being called normal. We have fornication being called normal. It's amazing when you look at the statistics where People did not live together in the past often. I'm not saying they never did because it's always been something that happened. But now we're, we're up to almost 50% of the households in America are not married. That's phenomenal when we think about what God says and we start looking at they're calling bad good or normal and they're calling good bad. And the sad thing about it is there's, there's such a small percentage of the population that are actually gay, homosexual, and transgender, and yet they're being forced upon the rest of the country. The, and this is a very interesting thing because they're, being, they're getting more and more accepted because of being pushed at a younger and younger age. And this is where it's Stalin said it and other dictators that if you give me control of the children, I can change the world. How do you change people's minds? You get the children taught different from what their parents believe. And this is why our government keeps wanting to push back further and further the age that they're paying for children to be taken care of by state-run care centers. Because if you can get the two and three-year-olds and, and one-year-olds away from their parents who are teaching them all this godly stuff and get them into state-run schools that you want them to believe is right and wrong, then we break the back of Christianity and its teaching. And this is why it's a very dangerous thing. Because, because if you can make it normal, yeah. it makes it acceptable. By showing it on TV, you're saying, well, see, almost, you know, we've got, yeah. we've got people on every TV show, so this shows you how normal it is. And this is why everything is going on. They're trying to get kids away from their parents earlier and earlier and early. And when they do that, they're already in the preschools teaching them by books of, I have, you know, Sarah has two mamas, okay? Reading this book to these kids that, you know, homosexual parents is the norm and is okay. So these kids, before they have critical thinking and understanding, are being taught wrong doctrine. And doctrine is key to this because doctrine is a way of thinking. I have met Christians who say, well, I'm just going to let my kids make their own choice. And well, then you're a total idiot because they're going to choose Satan. You need to do your job and teach them God. And if they want to turn away from God, that's their choice. But your job is to teach them every, what you know about God and how God's got standards. And if they get turned, then that's between them and God. But you need to do your job because we're sinful beings. If we're not taught correctly, we're going to choose sin always because that's what they have been taught. Yeah. They've been taught that kids have the right to make their own choices and we don't have the right to make our put our thoughts on them because that's, that's what's being taught. And this is what's being taught at the college level as well. Okay, there is no absolutes. There aren't any right and wrongs. Uh, the only reason people do wrong is because people taught them that it was wrong. And if they didn't, weren't taught that it was wrong, it wouldn't be wrong. And they go with this real big circular logic, but it's still everybody internally knows right and wrong. And as Paul says in Romans 3, even when the... the Gentiles, he said, make their own rules. They still don't keep their own rules. Okay, 
We show that we are sinners just by the fact that we won't even obey not just God's rules, we won't even obey our own societal and family rules or group rules. And that just shows us how evil the heart is. But God said it was going to happen, and God, we know that it doesn't mean that we're not going to try to stop it from happening. It doesn't mean that we're not going to go out and evangelize. Imagine how evil this world will be without the church throwing the salt of God's word on the evil wounds. We're the, right now, the church, the Holy Spirit is too, but the church is the restraining of evil right now. Because we're the ones saying, the, the true church, it is wrong. Imagine what they would do if there wasn't somebody saying, it is wrong, you can't do it. If they had free will just to go, free reign to do whatever they want. This will be what it's like when the church is taken out in the rapture and Satan is in charge and people can do what they want without the restraining salt of the church being in, being thrown at them. And they can do what they think they want to do and find out that there's no pleasure and no satisfaction in what they think they want. And in that latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to a full, a fierce, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And, and dark sentences are, are riddles, per, perplexing questions, difficult questions. We see these things coming up even in our day already. What do you do with the Middle East conflict? With, with They don't understand it because they're not even beginning to deal with it in its proper sense. They're not willing to go down to the truth of it. But it is a thorny issue that is not going to be something that man can solve. How do you, how do you bring apart together all these places that say it's our right to, to do what we want with our body and kill these children? It's our right to, to not get married if we want to. And there's these, all these things that are big problems that are coming up to our people. Satan will have come up with some answers for it. You know how easy it is for him to come up with answers for it? He's the one that stirs up the problems in the first place. All he's got to do is stop having the problems stirred up. And he's going to solve a lot of the problems just because he's not agitating the problem. We've got to think about this. How much battle there is from false religions against the real religion. And Satan has two advantages. Number one, the Christians are gone. And all he's got to do is show people how they're all his religion anyway and tie them all together, solve all the religious problems. He can come along and fix those with no problem, especially once the church is gone. He can, he can twist all the lies to, to fit together. Not a problem for him. Just one big lie that all fits together. We see here in verse 24, And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. I want to look at this a little closer because this one sounds kind of funny in the English. This, this verse 24. He's going, to, he's going to be powerful, but it's not just his power. And this is why we think it's the Antichrist, not possessed. He's not the devil himself. He's the one that's empowered by the devil. But it says here, he shall destroy. And that is to be bound by power. And it says, he just shall destroy wondrously. And that is by using another's power is what that means in the Hebrew. He destroys by using another's power. So the Antichrist is using the demonic world for destruction and shall prosper, which means succeed. And the Antichrist is going to look like he's succeeding for seven years until everything breaks, breaks apart when God comes forward. But it's going to look. He's going to, he's going to force what looks like peace, whatever that means in his, in his picture. But I love this in practice. This, this is work. He shall prosper and work. And shall destroy, he shall spoil and pervert the mighty and, and the holy people. This is when he comes against Israel. And he says, I'm your God, worship me. And they start, they start out worshiping him. They, they think the Antichrist is the greatest thing that's ever happened to them. Because all of a sudden there's peace in their country. And their temple gets built. But he's going to pervert even the Jews. And all the other mighty nations are going to be perverted and, and brought under his authority. He's going to succeed in this. It's going to be the authority of, of Satan running rampant. He's been given this world. It's been taken away from him at the cross, but it hasn't been totally taken away from him until the millennial kingdom is done. But he says he's going to succeed for a period of time. 
Satan is going to have a field day for seven years, thinking that he has everything he wants. People are going to be worshiping him. He's going to rule. God is not interfering that much. There's the there's the 144,000 witnesses. There's those two crazy men that stand outside the, the temple witnessing that he can't get rid of. But for the most part, he's going to have a pretty controlled time. But he still hates mankind, so most of his control is going to come from murder and destruction. Probably control of the media. Once he controls the media, nobody's going to know how bad things really are. And this is one of the reasons that dictators always get control of the media. So that they can do mass destruction and not have it hit the papers and news and everything. And people don't want, will not believe it. Verse 25, and through his policy or his understanding and insights, also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. Craft is a very interesting word. It's treachery and deceit. Treachery and deceit will prosper in the hands of the Antichrist. And you think about this in John 8, verse 44, Jesus said that when the devil speaks, he speaks of lies, which is his native language, his native tongue. He's going to make lies, deceit, treachery prosper. This is, can you imagine what it'll be like even in this last seven years, even in spite of the things that we know that God's doing, just to have Satan in charge, just to have him in charge with all of his lies, deceit, destruction, the desire to kill off as much of humanity as he possibly can. Because again, remember what I've told you is his desire is not that he's building a kingdom, but he wants to hurt God by taking as much of his most precious creation, us humans, away from God. And he's going to have seven years where he has mostly an unrestrained hand. And I say mostly because God still has told him at that point, you can't just take life. Because if he had full control over everybody that's there, as soon as, as, soon as the tribulation period started, everybody would be dead. Okay, Because that would be his goal. And God's saying, no, I've got, I still have a remnant that I'm going to pull out of this. So he does not have full control even then. He still has to go before God and say, how far can I go with this group? How far can I go with this group? How far? He's a dog on a chain even when he's in charge. He's on a very tight leash, and God says, you can do a lot. I'm going to let you do a lot of harm, but you cannot go in and destroy all of humanity on that day. Okay, so, and I've heard pastors tell, say, you know, the, Satan has full control over the lost, and I do not believe that, because if he did, they'd be dead. Because that's his only way to make sure that they stand no chance of being converted to God, is to kill them before they make a decision for him. So he is always and forever on a leash. And we see that even when he's released at the end of the millennial kingdom, he's on a leash. He's got a very short time to get people to come against him, and then they're destroyed and sent to the bottomless pit for, for eternity. So always keep in mind, he's a created being, he's on a leash, he's under the control of God, always. Even when he thinks he's not, and, want, and we're wanting the world to think that he's not, I don't think he ever uh, forgets that he's on a leash. But uh, we see this. And so craft or lies and deceits will prosper. He shall magnify himself in his heart. In his innermost being, he's going to magnify himself and say, how great I am. Look at me. I'm the ruler. This is the crazy thing about Satan. He's a created being. He knows he's on a, on a, on a leash and a chain. And somehow he's deceived himself because he is such a liar. He's lied to himself enough that somehow he thinks he's going to win. Even though he looks and God has told him, you know, and he has to go to God for permission to do anything, even with the rest of the world, somehow he thinks he's going to win. And this is amazing. How much deceit do you have to be telling yourself to believe that? So, and then it says, and by peace shall destroy many. Now, this word for peace is not shalom. Okay, and we've talked about shalom. Shalom means much more than just tranquil peace. It's that whole peacefulness with God and everything. This word for peace is shalvah. And it means to be put at ease, to be in prosperity, to uh, a period of quietness. How many times do we have problems when there's 
We end up walking away from God or doing sinful things when we are at peace and everything is quiet around us. And the next thing we know, we've walked away from God. How is he going to work this out in the end days? Through this quietness. See, we're all at peace. There's not, there's not that much trouble. You've got prosperity. You've got whatever. Now, it's not going to last long before he takes it all away. But quietness and ease oftentimes puts us off our guard and lets us forget that we're in a battle. When we're entertaining ourselves to death. And this is a topic that is really becoming a big topic as we watch TV and movies and music to the point of just entertaining ourselves so far away from God that we forget God. And this is how Satan works often. Oh, let me not bother you too bad. We'll just we'll let you get off your guard and we'll slip thoughts in on you. And this is why I share with people, I'm becoming more and more sensitive to the entertainment world. Because entertainment hits us when our minds are not on full guard. It's one thing listening to somebody speak to you or try to teach you or, or instruct you. Your guard goes up and, okay, I'm going to listen to this person. I've got to be careful how I listen to them. I'm going to be thinking about it. How many times have you sat down and watched something and then wondered why you watched it and then you thought about what you watched and, and thought about all the garbage that had just been implanted into your mind because of your guard being down? As Sharon said, all these shows now that have homosexuals in it, uh, all these shows that have people living together, all these shows that are showing no consequence for, for adultery or, or fornication, and it starts slipping into our brain and feeding our brain, all the shows that have murders and, and killing in them over and over and over again, desensitizing us in that area. Not making it necessarily that we're wanting to go do it, but it desensitizes us to it. And I remember in a message that I listened to on a pastor, he'd gone to the high school and he saw two girls kissing each other and it just freaked him out completely because he had lived in a very separate world. And I'm thinking, that should be a problem to me, but I spent time in a, in a town where, and it wasn't San Francisco, it's Puyallup, Washington, which is actually per capita more homosexuals than anywhere else in the world at that time. And most of the crew of my, that I had were homosexuals. Out of the 30 people, there were only about 8 or 10 of us that were straight. Now, they didn't do it all right there, but I mean, I saw things all the time, and I was desensitized to it. Not that I watched it on TV or anything, but I was desensitized to it because I had spent so much time where it happened all around you. And when he was saying that, I'm going, I should feel that way, and I don't because of how much I've seen it. And that's the whole purpose of our entertainment industry. This show you so much murder, so much killing, that when you see the real thing, it's not going to be shocking to you. And especially with the graphic nature that it's dis displayed anymore. It's so you show you so much fornication, so much adultery, that you don't even think twice about it. And homosexuality is the same way. Drunkenness with no, with no consequences paid that entertainment shows us. All of this is that ease and prosperity and that peace that this verse is talking about. False peace. Just everything is ease. Let's take you off your guard. That's how he's going to, to defeat people. He's going to get them off their guard. And then he shall stand against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. When he stands against God, when he actually comes against God at the end of the millennial kingdom, he will be defeated. And you look at that battle. I mean, all it is is that God speaks. That is over. Millions and millions die just by his spoken word. The sword comes out of his mouth and they die. And then he starts everything to be re redone. And so the good news here is the Antichrist loses. And I love the way it says, broken without hand. It's not even a, not even a trial. It's not, a, not hard for God to take him completely out. Verse 26, in the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told was, is true. Therefore, shut you up the vision, for it shall be for many days. So this, this is why we're going back to the 2,300 days. It's shut up. Gabriel said it's true, but I'm not we're not even telling you what it is, Daniel. 
So it could be Antiochus, it could be the, the Antichrist, it could be any time in between. But all we know is Daniel, you saw it, whatever he saw, and it says it's true, but I'm not, we're not explaining it, we're not writing it down. Which makes us wonder really what he saw. What did he see from, the, from that day? Because we look at his, his reaction, verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for certain days afterwards, and I rose up and did the king's business and was astonished or appalled at the vision, but none understood. That little portion, whatever he was shown of the 2,300 days, scared him silly. Scared him so bad, he fainted, and, the, and, the, and Gabriel said, we're not even telling you what that's all about. We're shutting it up. When the real peace shows up, he's going to come against him, and he's going to lose. Well, mine says Prince of Princes. Prince of Princes? Yeah. Sorry, I misread that. It is no, Prince of Princes. Which is God anyway, the, the Lord of Lords, God, uh, King of Kings. He just uses prince, prince instead of God because it's the, the Son and not the Father. Well, sorry, about, sorry about that. I read that no, wrong. But no, I just thought maybe if, was that talking about Satan or was that talking about... And Satan coming against... Yeah. Again, uh, he shall stand up against the, yeah. prince, of, the prince of princes or, or Jesus, but he shall be broken without hand. But we see Daniel's response. Whatever he saw during that period of 2300 or six just over six years scared him so bad that it made him sick and i've never been scared quite that bad and it said he was sick for certain days it doesn't tell us how many days but at least 48 hours if not longer because he saw something that terrified him and i mean if you just think about this all he had to do was see our time and it would probably terrify him but to see the evil of that time as well, and the evil of the of the tribulation period, and he ended up being sick, being so so uh, scared at what he saw that he got sick. And we know that the the emotions of our body can drive our physical physical people. People who worry all the time tend to be really sick because their body doesn't handle worry. And we see this. These we would say basically he was almost scared to death at what he saw because he fainted and he was sick for days afterwards. Wouldn't surprise me if he'd had some kind of heart, you know, heart problem at that point in time where God, you know, where his, his heart just stopped for a few minutes and had the problems thereof from that. So it wouldn't surprise me. He got very sick from what he said and, it, and it, he was astonished or appalled by what he saw in this vision. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for just the glimpse that we have of the future. Lord, help, it to, help us so that we're not afraid of this because you are our, our keeper, you are our fortress, you are our protector. You will take us out before all of this happens. And Lord, help us to bring others so that they don't have to go through this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.